Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow from Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us this week uh, for this show. You can catch us right here on KTRL 90.5 FM every Sunday at noon, and also streaming on tarletonradio.com. We also are available after the show on SoundCloud and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, follow us on Facebook for Uh, related stories that are connected to the events and issues and people that we talk about on the show. So I want to get right into our topic this week. This is one that I had in the queue, and of course we're still within a few weeks here of the outcome of the Chauvin trial uh, in Minnesota and following the George Floyd incident and of course all of the things that have happened uh, in our country, around the country since then. Uh, But the focus here really is looking at the impact of this trial. And, and of course, this is happening in in, in various ways uh, in media and other places. But we also have our resident uh, expert on policing, uh, as well as looking at these issues in an analytical way to kind of understand what their their impact may be going forward. And uh, so today what we wanted to do with this interview is I wanted to first welcome Dr. Alex Del Carmen, who's a professor of criminology and also the associate dean uh, in the College of Liberal and Fine Arts and directs the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice, and Strategic Studies. He's also uh, a well-known in the field of policing in terms of the, the training that he focuses on uh, related to um, uh, civil civil rights to uh, policing, uh, dealing with issues of, of race, racial pro- profiling. Uh, he's written several uh, books in this area. He's a, a great colleague and a great friend. And so welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Morrow. Very good. Well, I, I'm always your our, our, our go-to on this show for some of these issues, and especially uh, this one and its impact, because I know you've been following this and, and other related issues for years. And uh, these types of of, of events that happen that have such an, an impact in, in one way or another. And, and that's th- this one, the impact of this one seems uh, very different in some ways. And I, I really wanted to get your perspective on it. Uh, one is because I, in talking with people that I know that are uh, police officers, um, and, and you do a lot more of this than I do, but I've conversations I've had, uh, it seems very challenging for, for everyone that's in policing right now. When these when an event of this magnitude, but then also in the way that this has transpired, the trial itself, the outcome, uh, that even though you have those in policing that say, yes, the justice system did its, uh, it, it worked the way it should and, and moving forward with the process of trying to address this, uh, it's still there, there's not unanimity there there or people are just not willing to talk about it. They, they don't want to talk about it because it, it's putting a lot of stress on people who are out there in law enforcement uh, doing their jobs each and every day, uh, doing them well, uh, but then also having to do that in this kind of environment with with this you know, pushing on so many aspects of policing. So I, I have I know there's a number of questions here, but I. Uh, first of all, I think the the process of, of the trial of leading up to it and and the the, the outcome that it had. I, I wanted to ask your your thoughts on this. On uh, where, especially when you had a trial where you had uh, police officers testifying, which I know is not that unusual, but it is. It's not uh, always the case that you have uh, pol- uh, members of, of uh, a police force uh, testifying. Uh, either for or against uh, a fellow officer, uh, th- there's a lot that happened here. Uh, and in terms of its, the way it at least was portrayed in the media, the way that, that people received it in the public at large, uh, I thought I'd ask your analysis of that and what you see are some of the significant things uh, in terms of that process that led to his conviction and, uh, and through, the, through the trial. Well, once again, thanks for having me um, in your great show. I, it's always a pleasure to come on and and talk to you about these important topics. Um, I think that the George Floyd incident on May 25th of 2019 uh, changed the dynamics uh, of law enforcement in the United States, uh, probably permanently, and uh, at, the, at the very least for the next 20, 30 years. I say that because I think most of the shootings that we've seen in the past where Individuals have have died in in the hands of law enforcement, whether legitimate or not. 
I think that most times, most people in the public look at those incidents and always provide some sort of a context to the incident. In other words, they say, look, the, the individual that was the suspect in this incident um, may have been carrying a gun, or that cell phone may have looked like a gun, or the person was headed in the wrong direction, or why did that person resist arrest? There was always an explanation that would justify to a reasonable, logical person as to why use of force was used, and in some cases, lethal force. I think when 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 we all saw the video, the long nine minutes uh, of George Floyd uh, as he was pleading for his life, calling for his mother, asking uh, for oxygen, asking to breathe, I think regardless of one skin color, whether you know one is white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, at the end of the day, that individual, all of us, will were very much reflective that we saw a situation escalate to a point that it may have been unnecessary for that to happen. And then secondly, for the officers not to render aid once the person had been subdued. And so, so in, in, in Policing 101, we teach police officers that once they have controlled the situation, and in this case, it was clearly controlled. Mr. Floyd was uh, under uh, arrest. He was already handcuffed uh, on the ground. But at that point, there's really no need to continue the use of force event as it was continued. So I think that that, that powerful image, the, 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 the voices that were heard in the background, Mr. Floyd claiming for his life, I think all of those things will resonate with our generation in the United States for years to come. And I think the impact that it has had to your question is that good cops um, are scratching their heads asking how could this happen in the 21st century after we've done all that we've done to try to improve policing for the past 100 years. And they obviously condemn this incident and they want to, they, they insist on a better policing for society. On the other hand, you see others that have been protective about what happened and they seem to think that somehow we're glorifying an individual that should have never been, you know, uh, glorified to this level because he was under the influence of drugs and all that. I think we got to see some of that in the trial. But the bottom line, though, is, is that George Floyd and the incident of May 25th, 2019 has changed and will change the dynamics in policing in the United States for, for years to come. Do you, do you think in that line of, of, of analysis that uh, especially in seeing how the trial took place and that you did have uh, police officers testifying and, and so forth, that it raises the accountability within uh, police forces. I mean, how how has that been addressed in the past uh, in, in terms of trying to deal with people who may have biases that impact the way that they go about doing their jobs? And, and now, you know, seeing something like this uh, that could maybe dramatically change dynamics within within policing departments. I mean, within we're, with colleagues looking at other colleagues, or is this an issue uh, more so of training or vetting people who are on forces, uh, police forces, to be able to not see something come to 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 this level that 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 there are things that are addressed much sooner in terms of someone's capabilities or or ability to do the job. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think what we have seen in the past years is that we've seen an evolution of law enforcement towards a professionalization and standardizations across the United States. However, some of that has been cosmetic in the sense that agencies have actually adopted policies um, and they have great policies. They have uh, great training protocols. They have great training tools. They have simulators. They have, in the, in the, in the case of cities like Fort Worth, uh, they have an actual mock-up of a little town. Uh, you know, Arlington Police Department has trained their officers for years at Six Flags. They hire real actors and actresses to go in there and pose as victims or offenders. We've seen creativity across the United States. FBI has Hogan's Alley, which essentially is a, almost a mock-up city where they train the agents on how to do various things. But at the end of the day, the training can be good. The policies can be uh, can be uh, exceptional. Um, and all the right things can be said, but accountability is the name of the game. And what we have seen in the past few years, particularly since Floyd's death, is we've seen a rise of, of, of concern and focus across the United States 
on the accountability uh, component, meaning if you have a police officer that has been well-trained and you send that officer to the streets and you have that officer governed by all these general orders that police departments often are, go are governed by, you know, are you going to hold that officer accountable? And how are you going to hold that officer accountable? Or are you simply going to look the other way? You know, if you look at the DOJ investigations, which, as you know, recently uh, the Justice Department announced uh, two major investigations, uh, one in Minneapolis and one in Louisville, uh, you often see in their investigations the words patterns and practices. And you also see in their investigations the words uh, or you read about it in the words of deliberate indifference, which means looking the other way. And, and that is where accountability comes in. In other words, there are supervisors really digging in, looking at those body cam videos, looking at those dash cam videos. Are they recording the information and ensuring that the U.S. Constitution has been respected throughout the, the exchange between the officers and citizens? So when we're talking about the... Uh policing in, in communities, small and large. Uh, some of the analysis I've seen in responding to the trial has been where police officers live and how they engage with the communities that they serve. And some say that part of the challenge in policing and, and part of what we see in, in the George Floyd uh, and, and what happened there and in and others of these incidents is uh, really a lack of connection uh, between police officers and uh, the areas that they're serving. And I, I wanted your, to see your thoughts on that. Is that, um, is that a legitimate concern? And what are some things that police forces are looking at? Or are they looking at this more seriously to see how do, do, do they have people uh, much more integrated into the communities that they're serving? Or are we crossing a line here in terms of this is a profession and you're you have people who need to be trained and so on but it, this level of engagement of, of being a resident is not as critical as as some say that it is yeah uh, another great question right so so at the end of the day um we we think the theory is that 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 the fact that police officers sometimes don't live in the cities where they work uh, it's in itself problematic because they're not subject to the same diversity, uh, cultural realities of the cities, um, you know, where they work. And that clearly can have an impact. What is particularly concerning, I think, is that if you if you look at the past two to three years in the law enforcement business, you're seeing that a lot of young people, 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds are joining policing. By definition, these youngsters are, are a lot more diversified in thought process and in what they do by virtue of the fact that they have the internet, they've traveled, they've, they, they, they are mostly, most of them are understanding of the fact that different cultures and different races uh, coexist in different parts of the world, right? So, so I think that we're seeing that there's almost an infusion of that diversification through the young ones that are coming in. However, the theory, which has yet to be tested, but some of us are actually looking into it from a scientific perspective is that that and I, and I use I will use these lay terms here that many of them don't want to get dirty. And when I say that is when you see a, a drunkard, someone that is drunk uh, or intoxicated at a bar and they, they call 911. Right. So the officer shows up instead of the officer pulling the individual aside and perhaps even if, if required, engaging in a fistfight. The officer will then simply look at the utility belt, which is the belt that surrounds them all the time. And then basically they're going to say, OK, I have the taser, I have the baton, I have my gun. Which of these three things am I going to use? And so so instead of actually going back to New York in the early 1900s, where the officer would pick up the individual by the neck and take him over to the jail that way, um, and perhaps with a torn uniform by the time they showed up, what we're seeing now is we're seeing that the officers are relying more heavily on these tools instead of verbal judo, as we used to call it in law enforcement, which is the ability of being able to engage verbally, to show command and control of the situation. And if that fails, to use what we call neutralization techniques, which are just hand movements, you know, things that do not require for you to have a piece of equipment out in your hands and that you're going you're gonna to use against the individual. If you look at that, it's an interesting phenomenon, but, but it is, if, if that theory holds true, we're going to have to retrain these officers to really think of it, uh, think of those tools that they have around them as their absolute last resort, as opposed to their first go-to 
item whenever they face a critical circumstance. I think that brings up an interesting question that all of us who are outside of policing and, and really depend on on these people for what they do and the work that they offer and the service that they offer is is about the training. Because when you think about the human factor here, you know that they're putting threatening they're in threatening situations uh, and you they, they actually they're out there living with the, the idea and going out every day knowing that that dynamic could change at any moment and they could be in a threatening situation and in a in a uh, in our modern era era even though they have technology uh there's weapons out there that are much stronger than what they're carrying and 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 the the threat of violence because of uh, uh of other uh factors what how, how does that work in terms of helping uh police officers prepare to be in those kinds of situations uh because I, i've heard some commentators on this to say, well, what's missing is training them in like hand-to-hand combat. You know, could they, can they de-escalate something or take control of a situation without using weapons? But again, you're saying, you know, if you have these tools and you've been trained to use those tools, you're having to process in a very short amount of time what you use, how you use it, what you perceive the threat is. So I think some insight into what how that that training, you know, because I think people don't often think about that. That especially like you're saying, the young young men and women who are going out there and serving, maybe receiving you know months of training or preparation, and then and then ongoing to be able to to serve in this capacity. Uh, are having to make those kinds of decisions in the the kind of world that we live in that presents them with so many different uh, factors in in just seconds, as we've seen with some of these incidents recently. Yeah, so so I, I think when you look at it from the standpoint of law enforcement on use of force, you you have to go back and say, okay, so uh, first of all, it is the noblest uh, of 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 all professions. I I think I, I think being a police officer. And being able to um, intellectually and sometimes in a factual manner give your life uh, to save another, uh, you know, it is, is, is one of the noblest things that a human being can do. Uh, I have, you know, in the 24 years that I've been associated with law enforcement trained, um, you know, they estimate about 15,000 police officers and every chief in Texas since 01. I can tell you it's been an honor of my life to train them. Uh, met many, many good people in the law enforcement industry, uh, people that I have a great deal of respect for. And and in some cases, I've, I've lost, uh, you know, at least two of my former students, uh, Joey Cushman and Julian Smith, um, in the line of duty, um, you know, uh, which is very difficult, as you can imagine, for us professors to lose someone that, that we've trained, that we recommended to the police department, and then ultimately they gave up, um, you know, their last breath to save somebody else. Having said that, I think that what you also look at and you also realize is that um, law enforcement, uh, they put themselves in danger constantly. This is a job that is literally a job that requires for you to have an even tempo in your temperament in the sense that you're gonna be facing the most difficult situations that a human being can ever see. When, When one thing is to read about it, Another thing is to teach about it. Another thing is to be standing there in front of a person that's dying in the middle of the street from a gunshot wound. I've been in those situations. I've seen that happen in my own eyes uh, when I was a federal monitor in New Orleans and more recently my work in Puerto Rico. And I will tell you that it stays with you for the rest of your life. Being a police officer is not easy. And sometimes they are required to use force. And sometimes that force has to be lethal. There is no question. There is no negotiation. We have really, really bad actors out there that are trying to harm innocent people. And police officers understand that. They train to do that. And that they know that there are instances when somebody pulls a gun or somebody threatens an innocent person, they have to, by by law, by definition, and by training, they have to respond to lethal force with lethal force. We call that awful but awful, but but lawful rather. In other words, it is an awful act, but it is a lawful act. And so at the end of the day, police officers are trained to do that and situations will require them to do that. And you're right, Eric, in the sense that nowadays we see more and more people that have tendencies to carry guns, to carry, you know, uh, semi-automatic weapons, to use weapons to outgun police officers. 
And, and so cops understand that and they want to go home, <laughs> just like you and I do at the end of our day. They want to go home and have dinner with their families, with their loved ones. And so, so that's always in the back of their heads. What we're talking about in the context of de-escalation is the idea that there are circumstances that don't really require for that officer to draw their gun out. There, there, there are circumstances that, and, and really most of them, don't require for the officer to use you know, force per se. And sometimes using verbal judo, sometimes engaging in even a, a fist-related, uh, 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 you know, engagement may actually diffuse the situation from having to face a lethal, a lethal one. So that those are the ones we're focusing on. But I think all of us in policing, those of us that have trained police officers, we know that there are times that it's inevitable that they will use lethal force. So, so back to the the trial and it, its impact, uh, and and just those feelings of of that I've seen expressed by several police officers that I know in terms of, I, I would say, low morale, uh, given not just the outcome of the trial uh, uh, and and the focus there, but just the the scrutiny uh, that all of this is under, um, and and maybe some of the. Uh, uncertainty uh, of going forward of how this will have an impact. And I wanted to get your perspective on that because uh, my understanding here with law enforcement is that uh, there is uniformity in some things and then in some areas there's not, you know, and that's the challenge, I guess, of researchers and scholars and, and people like you who are involved in training that you're trying to bring uh, best practices uh, into the availability of policing around the state and across the nation. Um, how does that look going forward? Is that uh, is this something the federal government maybe has a, has a stronger role in in doing, uh, or is this? Uh, I mean, is it going to be more training? Is that the the, the where the focus will be placed? Uh, what do you think the the longer term impact will be here on? Uh, policing, especially we talk about local law enforcement and uh, just their day-to-day work. And then I also want to ask the question, we can get to this before we, we finish, but uh, how, how do we, in policing, address this this morale issue? How do we transition from uh, this seems so uncertain and so challenging to uh, getting back to some level of, of recognizing uh, the significance of what many of these people, the majority by far, are doing each and every day. Yeah, I look when when it comes to morale. Um, I think most of us agree that the morale is an all time low um, right now. That that a lot of police departments are struggling to keep their people and even hire new ones um, because of the fact that we've seen such negativity in social media and throughout the United States as it relates to law enforcement. I mean, you're 21, 22 years old. You've got your bachelor's degree or close to having one. Um, you know, all the options are on the table. Why would you want to go and serve a local community, be paid below the standard wages that you could make otherwise, and be subject to the scrutiny, liability, um, you know, uh, and in many ways criticism that society gives police officers today? So it is it is by far one of the least desirable uh, jobs that people are seeking. And that does worry me and many of us because, you know, we're hoping that young, talented Americans will join the ranks of law enforcement to be able to secure and and provide safety to our children and our and the next generation coming up. So so we're going to have to figure out how we're going to make this job attractive, how we're going to be able to pay officers better, how we're going to be able to entice good people to the ranks of law enforcement because what we're seeing right now is quite honestly very much concerning and alarming perhaps at times when police officers are individuals are just leaving by throats. I mean, law enforcement, and they're doing something else other than. And what's sad is that the good ones are the ones that are leaving. Um, you know, and so the people that you want to stay in law enforcement are the ones that that are taking off. Now, when it comes to the nationalization of standards and whatnot, the other part of your question, I think that, you know, law enforcement was created across the United States with the same um, sort of spirit as our founding fathers had of having every state and every jurisdiction provide their own protection to their citizens. While there's a role for the federal government as it relates to federal agencies such as the FBI, ATF, Secret Service, et cetera, you know, that's been sort of a harmonious relationship, um, you know, throughout the years. 
and it's worked, right? Uh, as far as being able to have, for instance, a crime that has federal jurisdiction in one of our cities where you would clearly see the local law enforcement entity, the municipality, the county, the state, and the, the U.S., the U.S. government all working together towards a common goal. Not, I wouldn't say that it's perfect, but I would say that it's functional. Having said that, um, there's been a, a recent rise of concern and movement to nationalize, for instance, the definition on use of force. Uh, what excessive use of force means across the U.S. instead of going by state, you know, to state in terms of its definition. There's been also conversations about standardizing training, and there should be a national standard, national registry uh, on training. I think those conceptually are good ideas. My concern is, is that there's some jurisdictions, like if you look at Texas, most of Texas law enforcement is rural. Most of Texas law enforcement is five officers or less. Um, in an entity. So how are you going to mandate those trainings without funding? How are you going to require these folks to do all of these things without giving them a check uh, or giving them the equipment to do it, right? And that's the problem with these unfunded mandates that are required oftentimes that, that the local lo local cities and jurisdictions have to figure out how they're going to pay for it. As, as far as the actual, you know, national data bank, I think we're going to see in the next few years a, a drive to have a national registry of police officers that have been disciplined, for instance, so that if they go from one state to the next, that they're not going to be, you know, uh, anonymous to the next state that they go to. I think we're going to see more involvement from the national government, especially USDOJ, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, who, as you know, I've worked with them before and currently work with them now. I think they're going to have a greater role. Um, and, uh, you know, last I heard, they're, they're already looking at doing major investigations in all other parts of the United States. I think there is a time for the federal government to come in and, and establish norms. Um, I, as a Texan, I can tell you that I'm very protective of, of that because I would rather have our state solve its own issues than have the feds come in and tell us what to do. But I have been to police departments in the course of my 24 years where I've shaken my head after you look at the shootings that have gone wrong, the, the lack of constitutional components that are in place where you just have to absolutely just, you know, throw your hands up in the air and say, the only solution to this is federal intervention. And that's where these consent decrees come in and, and have had some sort of an effect on that. So that part of it, especially the relation between federal and state and, and talking about issues of nationalization uh, becomes very political. And we deal with a lot of politics on the on this show. I, th I think one very political aspect of this, because we're right now in the middle of a or toward the end of a state legislative session in Texas after the George Floyd incident, this has come up before and previous, but it's also been in, in recent months as well. Uh, the debate over uh, between groups that are saying, okay, well, we need to uh, defund police and move those resources into other types of community services or agencies that will deal with, with the problem. Uh, the challenge is, is that, and, and we're probably, I would say, most likely not going to see much success with that because of some of the things you're talking about, right? The number of police officers that are retiring or the, the difficulty recruiting uh, police officers, the, the, the training that, that's uh, needed and, and maybe even expanded. Um, uh, I don't want to get into that, that political back and forth. I think the question here is what, what is a, what is a way forward that may uh, be both and? And, and we know that, the challenge here is that usually these solutions uh, do require more resources, not moving them from one place to another, uh, because all you do is create other problems, you know, when you move, when you shift resources. And I didn't know what your thoughts were on, on that, to kind of jump in the middle of that debate. What's kind of a, a, a balanced view that you see between uh, properly funding uh, policing but then also looking at, okay, what are other things and areas that may need to be addressed that, that, that help policing? Because they're addressing some of the challenges we see uh, in, in our communities and in cities around the country. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I tell you, first of all, I think defunding the police is a horrible idea. I think that the idea that you're going to take away resources from the same entity that you're saying that needs critical help uh, just makes no sense at all. 
You know, I mean, why why would you say, oh, people are starving to death, so we're going to go ahead and close the supermarkets? I mean, it just makes it's completely oxymoronic, right? And and I think what what I have heard and read is that the the original narrative was to control the the, the spending, not necessarily to eliminate it. But regardless, uh, the bottom line though is, from a policy perspective, is that law enforcement knows how to best spend their money. Uh, given the current situation in which they're in. I would like to continue to see law enforcement entities uh, be given the ability of making those decisions on the ground with some civilian oversight. I think the happy medium as it relates to your question is, you know, you have to look at the community at large and and, and look at the law enforcement uh, leaders and say to them, you cannot function without the community. The, the community is an integral part of, of a law enforcement entity who writes the checks who, who pays the taxes to pay those salaries are regular citizens that for the most part have no law enforcement background. And I think that that message is really, really important to remind officers about that at the end of the day, they're there to protect, but also to serve the community that actually pays their salary. That unification, that connectivity uh, with the community, the civilian oversights uh, boards uh, that don't necessarily have subpoena power, but they just simply have the ability to understand what policies are, how they're drafted, for the chief to brief them when a critical incident takes place. That is super important. We've seen that work uh, amazingly well in some parts of the United States, including Texas, uh, when they've had a very close connection with the community. The, 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 on, the, on the part of the community, I think we need to do a better job understanding the complexities of law enforcement. This is not a simple, I mean, most people get their, their uh, you know, their information about what cops do based on TV shows or, or, or TV programs. And, you know, back in the years uh, of my childhood, it was a TJ Hooker, which if you smile at this, you'll understand, you know, that I'll understand that you're from my generation, right? So, so which is, you know, TJ Hooker, you know, being able to solve all the crimes in 60 minutes or less. And, uh, you know, seldom got scratched. And when he did, he was out of the hospital that afternoon. Bottom line, though, is, is that that's not that's not what law enforcement does, right? And and you look at uh, programs like COPS that glorify the chase, that glorify the action, but they seldom show the officer writing reports and doing other things. I think the community needs to be educated better. And I think we need to do a better job understanding the difficulties, the complexities related to that. I think we need to learn how to behave when a cop stops us uh, versus throwing things at the officer and expecting the officer to remain cool, calm, and collected. So I think that all of those components are incredibly important. And at the end of the day, we have to meet police officers halfway. It can't just be action on behalf of the officers and the community simply throws up their arms in the air and allows them to do it. Well, thank you for that analysis. Uh, uh, you said T.J. Hooker. I was thinking one Adam 12. That, that goes back even a, a little bit further <laughs> than I, I watched in, 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 in my generation. That was it was just, you know, that's cool. I want to do that. I want to grow up and, and do that. Nice uniform, tie, nice car, you know, that, that kind of thing. But uh, but yes, you, you, it is it's something I think this comes back to something we've emphasized in, on so many issues on this show, and that is people being willing to be engaged in these issues and be informed. I mean, one of the, the primary reasons we do the show is to get more substantive information out to people, but also to encourage them to be uh, engaged themselves in their communities, because that that in and of itself is, is so critical when you're talking about uh, being able to adapt and manage it based on the needs of a, a specific location uh, of, a, of a city or a town or uh, a community, rather than it being uh, uh, standardized across the, the country or across the state in a way that that sometimes is not the right fit. Uh, and so that that's very uh, aligns very much with what we try to do here uh, on this program. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. This is very helpful in really trying to understand the impact uh, post-trial, looking back at at, at what happened to George Floyd. This is going to be with us for months and years to come, uh, especially looking at how governments at the state, local, and even the federal level are going to be engaged with this. But more importantly, I think for all of us, as we've emphasized here today, our local police departments and our local police, the people working day in, day out uh, to serve uh, and protect. And I really appreciate your time and your analysis today to help us 
engage with this and, and, and think about what our part is, our role maybe as, as a part of our communities uh, in understanding this and, and showing the support that we need to for law enforcement. No, and thank you for having me and uh, kudos to you for doing these kinds of shows that allow you know, people to be better informed and, and make their own decisions. So thank you again. It's been an honor. This is Dr. Alex Del Carmen, Associate Dean of the College of Liberal and Fine Arts and Professor of Criminology, who has been a regular on our show and engaging with some of these very challenging issues in, in law enforcement and criminal justice. We are going to take a quick break, and after that, we will be back with more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we're glad you're joining us today. We had the interview with Dr. Alex Del Carmen in the first half of the show, focusing on the outcomes or the impact of the Derek Chauvin trial that was, of course, uh, had happened after the uh, George Floyd incident and his death and the challenges that followed that for months. And then, of course, the trial and its impact on policing. If you missed that first part of the show, you can catch it after this show airs on SoundCloud or you can download as a podcast. So please I would encourage you to do that. And I think one of the things, the takeaway from that is really about each of us in our own communities being aware of the issues and the challenges involved with policing, uh, showing our support and knowing that by far the great majority of people out there in law enforcement are doing their jobs each day to protect and to serve. And they need the community engagement. They need community support. They need community oversight as uh, Dr. Del Carmen mentioned. And so we need to keep these issues in front of us as we do many issues on this show in terms of our involvement in our local communities and our engagement with these national issues that very much have an impact uh, on community services, public service, especially the one today as we discussed on law enforcement. For the last segment of the show, I want to turn to a couple of issues. The first one in the state of Texas in which we are nearing the end of the 87th Texas legislature. So here we are in the final weeks of the legislative session. And of course, the primary focus in that part of the session is the budget and passing the budget uh, for the next biennium. So each legislature, which meets every two years, uh, passes a budget for the next two years. So this will start in the fiscal year that begins September 1 and funds government in Texas. And one of the big concerns earlier this year and in last fall uh, around the elections was coming into this session with a shortfall because of the impact of the pandemic and its impact on the economy. That has all but disappeared, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, we don't know going forward. It's going to be challenging to see uh, what the, the, the needs are, where the economic trends are in the months and years ahead uh, as we uh, hope to see the pandemic uh, winding uh, down or at least uh, being uh, managed uh, as we move forward with vaccinations and, and so forth. But this budget is always a primary focus of the legislative session. And earlier uh, in the session, we had the Senate, which passed a $250 billion state budget. That's $250 billion over two years. The House this past week passed a $246 billion state budget, uh, which, um, again, as I said, it's uh, the deficit that was of concern has all but been erased. One of the challenges in the mix of this, and of course, we'll reflect on this post uh, budget being passed and look back and see how this is managed by the state legislature uh, as this moves to a conclusion. 
uh, was the influx of federal resources that are being made available through the various aid packages that have been passed. And of course, we still don't know if an infrastructure bill goes through what impact that may even have uh, on state resources as well. Uh, so the picture looks much, much better uh, than it did even three, two or three months ago, and certainly better than it did uh, six months or, or even a year ago when we were in the, 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 the rapid increase of the pandemic and its impact uh, on spending and on the economy. Uh, so this this budget passage is is quite significant, or at least at the stage that it's at now. Now it'll go to a, a conference committee between the two chambers, the Senate and the House. They'll work out their differences. They're only about four billion apart uh, the, in what it seems at this moment. Uh, but one of the interesting side notes that I want to bring to your attention, and this has very much to do with the way that we do government in Texas or the way government may be challenged in Texas, and that is as a part of this passage of the House version uh, of the budget, uh, there were a couple of things that received attention by lawmakers related to the executive. And in Texas, we have a, a, a very weak executive, at least in terms of the office of the governor, and executive power is spread out over multiple positions elected directly by the people, the lieutenant governor, uh, the attorney general, the agricultural commissioner, uh, the railroad commissioners, uh, the state uh, uh, comptroller. Again, these are positions that are elected directly by the people and they don't really answer directly to the governor. I mean, they could have alignment in terms of political party uh, and, and ideology and political agendas, uh, but uh, we already have this weak executive. The, the power in Texas government is really vested in uh, the legislature. If you wanted to look at, at, a, at a branch of government, uh, that that because of appropriations, because of they they are the, really the ones that determine uh, what will be spent and where it will be spent, and so we had a couple of shots over the bow here uh, in uh, this this budget proposal, and we'll see if these things hold. One was focused at the enterprise fund uh, that is under the purview of the governor of the state. And so one of the things that uh, House members uh, approved was an amendment that was proposed by Representative Brian Slayton of Royce City uh, to defund the Texas Enterprise Fund and shift about $100 million over to property tax relief. Now, this is a fund that the governor has use of in order to uh, focus on economic development. Uh, it's it's one of those. It's a fund with resources that are can be used by the governor in order to to get companies to expand or to relocate to Texas. And here are incentives to go towards a uh, you know a tax relief uh, in terms of local uh, to help uh, fund infrastructure needs uh, to help fund research. Uh, it's been used for a wide range of reasons over the years that it's been in place, uh, but it gives the governor a significant amount of latitude in uh, focusing on and driving economic development. And so the, the, the legislature here is responding uh, in this budget proposal and this amendment that was attached to it to shift those funds away from uh, the governor. So another focus uh, in this budget uh, was to an amendment that was proposed by Representative Jessica Gonzalez of Dallas uh, that cap uh, what the Texas Attorney General, General's office can spend on outside legal counsel. Uh, this amendment passed uh, 73 to 64 uh, and was filed in response to the state's major and very costly lawsuit against Google in which the Attorney General of, uh, Office of the state hired outside lawyers to handle. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the reporting is that most senior attorneys who have been hired could net as much as $3,780 per hour. So this amendment would cap that outside legal counsel at $500 uh, per hour. Uh, there were other uh, amendments that were, that were filed aiming at, at, at the Attorney General Paxton. And part of the reason for that uh, has, of course, been his troubles in his time in office. But both of these, and this is what I want to focus on, 
are, are actually the use of the power of the legislature over against the executive, uh, really to, to hold things in check here. One, there was significant concern uh, early on in the pandemic and, and was throughout the summer last year of the governor overstepping his bounds on the executive orders that he was issuing and the restrictions that he put in place related to the pandemic. And so a number of people, Republican uh, uh, committees and, and counties, and it, this even boiled into the uh, Republican convention in Texas, uh, there were significant uh, concerns expressed regarding the power of the governor. And so there were amendments passed, or not amendments, but bills filed early on trying to restrict his emergency uh, powers. And we'll see where, where those actually end up once the session is over. Uh, but this is another uh, element here uh, in terms of the, the legislature asserting its power and authority over the resources of the state uh, and, and looking at the governor and saying, okay, you know what, we're, we're going to pull back on this. This is either one, it's oversight in terms of what this fund's been used for and how it's being used. And it also is political as well. It's political in, in holding the governor in check and saying, okay, look, you're, you, you, you made decisions. We don't agree with those. And this is a way in which we can respond to that. That's often how it works in the realm of politics. You may not be able to directly answer and respond to the, the boundaries or parameters of a certain decision or the way that the governor, uh, uh, what, his, what his actions were on a certain thing, but you can respond somewhere else. There's some other way uh, through the policy process to target uh, some aspect, some resource uh, in order to say, hey, you, th there are limits here. And so I think both of these are, are that way. I think some of them are you know, fiscal uh, responsibility that lawmakers feel like they have in trying to oversee uh, these kinds of resources. Uh, the focus on Paxton, of course, is broad and has broader support, especially among Democrats, but also as we saw with this vote with Republicans, because Paxton has uh, really had some significant challenges uh, while he's been in office. His uh, personal uh, financial uh, issues, uh, the way that he's managed the office and how uh, uh, the challenges have been there with people leaving, uh, the claims against him in terms of his uh, ethics and the, the way that he's uh, conducted himself in office. And so, again, I think some of that fuels this uh, approach that lawmakers are taking in order to put more restrictions uh, on the executive branch. And that's very typical of government in Texas. Uh, that's that's uh, something when we look back over the history of the state, the power of the legislature uh, trying to hold in check the governorship, trying to keep it uh, uh, in where it's set constitutionally, which has significant limits on power, uh, really unless a governor's in office for multiple terms and makes numerous appointments across boards and agencies in the state of Texas, uh, the legislature open, uh, ultimately decides what funding they get, how um, how appropriations are made, and that can have a significant impact uh, on uh, the governor's authority. So it'll be interesting to see how this budget wraps up. I just wanted to bring that into focus in the show because it is kind of interesting to see this interplay between the two branches of government in the state, and we'll see how that comes out in uh, the final budget. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to get into before we conclude the show today uh, and that is moving to a national and really even an international level. Uh, I do want to direct you to a New York Times article that is out uh, on uh, May 7th uh, that uh, focuses on the relationship between Biden and Vladimir Putin, the uh, president of Russia, uh, but also looking at uh, how this is impacting the relationship uh, between uh, the United States and uh, the um, uh, and, and Russia. Uh, and so I, I want to direct you, it's in the May 7th issue of the New York Times. It's Biden versus Putin. I bring this to your attention, and we're not, don't have a lot of time to address it here on the show, but I bring it to your attention because I think this is going to be on the international scene, uh, really an ongoing issue. I think what we're seeing in terms of uh, the transition in Donald Trump's approach to Russia to Biden's approach, 
Biden taking a much more of a hard line here. And of course, the Biden administration lining itself up in support of Ukraine. Uh, recently, as the article talks about, the foreign minister uh, or the ambassador was there in Russia, the, the secretary of state, I'm sorry, Antony Blinken visited Kiev uh, to emphasize American support for Ukraine and went and paid a visit uh, holding a bouquet of roses to the memorial for Ukrainian soldiers killed in the fighting uh, with Russia. Uh, so it's very clear that the United States is uh, very supportive of Ukraine and against Russian aggression in that region. And Russia is responding by continuing to build up troops um, and sending a message both to Ukraine and to the U.S. and the European Union that uh, Russia is not going to back down uh, on this, that uh, it is about intimidation. Uh, it is about that that Russia, as the article says, considers the country to be within its sphere of influence and opposes Ukraine's attempts to join NATO. Uh, this this whole issue here has the the makings of a significant international challenge and and one that we've not seen to uh, of this magnitude with uh, again Russia and the United States at odds with each other. Uh, NATO involved and seeing how this is going to play out. Uh, I think one, we all should be concerned and be watching it uh, because it does have the potential uh, to uh, not only turn that area into even more of a, a, a area of conflict and, and significant tensions, but to escalate uh, very, very quickly. And so we need to be uh, uh, watching this. I, I just wanted to bring it to your attention so that you can be informed about it. And we'll give you more attention uh, as we move forward with future episodes of the show. Again, I want to thank you for joining us today. We're right here each week, Sunday at noon on KTRL 90.5 FM. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow. Look for us on SoundCloud, Facebook, wherever you get your podcast. And you'll join us here each week for engaging interviews and focus on issues at the state, local, national, and international levels. Thank you. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.